good to join you in thinking about this tough topic of faith and politics, both this morning as well as in a couple of sessions this afternoon. I don't need to tell you how difficult this is. Just a couple of days ago, I read a, the following tweet from somebody named James arguing for President Trump's reelection bid. James says this, he says, This is our last stand, folks, and here's your last defender. If they take him down, America is gone forever. Vote for Donald Trump like your life depends on it. And then James's tweet was set inside of the president himself retweeting and affirming what James said. He says, thank you, James. Sadly, you are 100% correct, triple exclamation point. I want you to think about those words in James's tweet, vote like your life depended on it. In other words, James perceives the other side, the Democrat side, as an existential threat. Existential threat, as in a threat against his existence. America will be gone forever. Vote as if your light depended on it. The other side is an existential threat to our side. So vote as if your life depended on it. And I think a lot of people on the Christian right who are voting together with James for, say, the president feel that very same existential threat, threat against existence, that James articulates in his tweet. Uh, They might say things, well, the, the life of the unborn, surely their existence, quite literally, is under threat. Uh, Possibly the ability of our churches to continue to gather under the commands of God and to worship and to follow Him in our jobs and all the ways He calls us to in in His Word without bowing the knee to the the gods of LGBT. All of that is, is under threat. We are existentially threatened by the other side. Vote as if your life depended on it. Meanwhile, I think we could cross the aisle and we find the very same kind of language, the very same kind of concerns as if voting for Trump and and the right is an existential threat to the left. I I don't think I'd have to spend many minutes digging around Twitter and I'm pretty sure I could find tweets that say vote against Trump as if your life depended on it. Or you, you, might, you might even think of that popular slogan from the left right now, Black Lives Matter. I, I think that's a wonderful, glorious theological truth that all Christians would affirm, at least the, the theology of it. But let's think for a moment, what's behind the movement? What's behind the organization? Well, it's, it's that sense of threat that many people of color would feel. The threat that this country is not ordered and running as if my life matters. And I need to assert the fact that my life matters. There's an existential threat, as it were, against my life. And we need to therefore assert it. In fact, we're we're, we're even going to risk pandemics. We're going to risk disobeying the government and go out and march. We're going to talk about defunding the police because we see an existential threat. 
Uh, Just this week, I was addressing a group of church leaders on Zoom on these very topics of faith and politics and uh, some, some political questions about Christian liberty. And I was, I was saying, you know, Christians need to continue to affirm Christian leader, the liberty, the ability of, of Christians to disagree on some of these kinds of topics. And, and one of the church elders in this other congregation who's Hispanic, he said, Jonathan, I'll be honest with you, I struggle with this idea of Christian liberty insofar as the president and his language of, of race baiting makes me feel unsafe, makes me feel bodily unsafe. And I think about my parents and, you know, they're going to Walmart shopping and the kind of culture and the kind of language that the president is using, how do I know somebody's not just going to go crazy, get angry and shoot them, right? My existence feels threatened, said this elder. And in short, friends, I I would say many folk in our country today, Christian and non-Christian, on both sides of our present political divides, feel like the other side is a threat to their very existence. And as a result of that threat, we increasingly, both sides, occupy a, a posture of fear, resentment, rage. I mean, after all, what's What's the response when you, when you feel like somebody or something is, is, is a threat to you? Well, it, it's to be afraid of it, right? It's to resent it. It's to rage against it. And so increasingly, our political culture and our conversations and social media and what's on the news is characterized by, by those things, by fear, by resentment, by rage. And then tribalism takes hold on both sides and any, anybody who doesn't speak perfectly along the lines of the script of this tribe gets attacked and brought into place. Anybody on this side who doesn't kind of is attacked. And then we talk, we talk about cancel culture. I'm going to cancel you if, if you're not reading according to my parties and my tribe's script. And why are we doing this? Well, again, because people feel an existential threat. And, and sadly, I, I trust many of us know we even feel this. Christians feel this inside of our churches. Right? Or across churches. And I, I confess that one of my concerns is if, if we don't get a handle on this, if we don't understand this, we Christians could tear one another apart in the upcoming political season. So, so, so what should we do? What's the response? Well, one way to respond to this is to deny the existential threat. To say people are just being hysterical. They're not thinking rightly. So you, you remember James' tweet about how vote as if your life depended on it, and, then, and President Trump's response is, uh, yeah, yeah, that's correct. correct. Well, actually, I saw all three, both of those framed inside of a, a third tweet from journalist David French, who commented on Trump and James' tweets, and, and French plays the part of sort of the cool-headed middle. He writes, I used to think that the endless existential threat arguments would eventually numb people to the hysteria. But for now, it's just making them ever more fearful and angry, vulnerable to the wildest theories and dumbest arguments. Now, on the one hand, I I agree with French's comments here. Folks on the right and the left are acting hysterically and in fear and in rage and increasingly falling prey to various kinds of conspiracy theories. On the other hand... I don't think the solution is to deny the threat. 
threat against existence. It is very real. If you are an unborn child, the threat, the existential threat is very real. If you are an immigrant facing deportation or the division of your family in one way or another, that is a real threat. If you are a person of color, you face, feel, experience very real threats. I'm not saying all of these threats are the same. I'm simply saying they are all real and meaningful. Politics, after all, is the realm of existential threats. Politics is the business of preserving lives and, and peace and, and order so, so, so people can live their lives. So we can deny that the existential threats exist. I could stand here on stage and say, no, 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 they're not that big of a deal. Chill out. But I think most people on both sides won't really buy it because they see it, they feel it. So again, what do we do? What's the solution? Well, Adam and the elders invited me to come discuss faith and politics both this morning and a couple of sessions this afternoon. I'm, I'm going to answer this question over these several talks, offering something different in each one. My goal in this morning's service, well, it's to preach a text. It's going to expose a piece of Scripture. It's, it's going to be an exposition or a kind of expositional sermon. Uh, and specifically one that's focused on the topic of politics and the existential threats that people feel. So I'm going to explain the text, but I'm going to kind of apply it specifically, especially in this realm of politics, help, it to, help us to meditate on the political landscape. Specifically, I'm going to think about Psalm 2. If you have a Bible, turn to Psalm 2, because what Psalm 2 does is it sort of pulls back the curtain so that we can see what's really going on in the political landscapes of the day. Or to put it another way, a different metaphor, it's, it's like a set of x-ray vision glasses that we can put on to see what's really happening when politics and parties and politicians make their existential threats and make their promises of this or that kind. And what we're going to learn is not that existential threats are not real. They are real. What we're going to learn is that there's something far scarier, and that's an eternal threat. And it's only when we understand the eternal threat that we understand how threatening these existential here and now threats actually are. Psalm 2, turn there. Acts 13 tells us it's a psalm of David, who of course was no stranger to existential and political threats. You can follow along as I read. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and Cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. 
I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today, I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Well, Psalm 2 offers us a cosmic picture of the nations and God's plan for the entire earth. It's a, it's a royal psalm and is one of the most explicit messianic, pointing to the Messiah, psalms in the whole Psalter, which explains why the New Testament authors quote it more than any other psalm. And we find as we look at it, the psalm fairly easily divides into four sections, and we're going to structure our time around those four sections, four lessons that we learn from Psalm 2. Lesson 1 is verses 1 to 3, and the lesson is every nation rebels against the Lord, and it's vain. Lesson 1, every nation rebels against the Lord, and it's vain. Look at verse 1 again. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? Now, of course, that's a, that's a rhetorical question. Kind of like, why would you do this? Don't you understand this isn't going to get you anywhere? This is a bad idea. And, and notice how he takes in all the earth. He talks about the nations and peoples raging against the Lord. And, and then he focuses his indictment, if you noticed, he focuses his indictment politically. He, he refers to kings and rulers raging against the Lord and against his anointed. So this is Jewish kings and Gentile kings. This is Herod and this is Pontius Pilate. They would all rage against him. And, and of course, in a democracy, who are the kings? Was it not us voters? Could it be that... The voters of the earth, too, rage against the Lord and against his anointed. Yeah, yeah, they, as I, notice I, I, I said they don't just rage against the Lord, they rage against the Lord and his anointed. In Hebrew, the word is Mashiach. What does that sound like? Messiah. They rage against the Messiah. They rage against the Lord Jesus. All people, all nations rage against the Lord and against Jesus Christ, says Psalm 2. And, and again, notice how political all of this is. This is not just, you know, I have certain religious objections to God. I have certain philosophical objections to God. Working by my epistemology, I, I just don't know that we can really ascertain that. Uh, that's not the way the psalm talks. This rather is, I want to live my life. I want my nation to live its life by my rule, by its own rule. I don't want his rule. I want my rule, our rule, over and against him. That's the objection. Not philosophical. It's not epistemological. It's very much political. Look at verse 3. Let us burst their bonds apart. 
and cast away their cords. The words bonds and cords refer to the, the yoke of a cart or plow that would be placed on the necks of animals, which is to say from the standpoint of the nations and their governments, God's rule is perceived as a yoke-like, enslaving, oppressive binding. And so they want to cast it off. The politics of the nations oppose the rule of King Jesus. Why? Well, we learn from the rest of Scripture. doesn't make this quite explicit here, but we, we know from the rest of the Bible that the nations have other gods, other things they worship. In fact, I encourage you to write this down if you're taking notes. Our worship determines our politics. Our worship determines our politics. And that's true whether we're discussing abortion or same-sex marriage or health care or immigration or federal funding for national parks. We vote the way we do because we have a certain view of what's just. Okay? We vote the way we do because we have a certain view of what's just. And what's behind our definition of justice? Where do we get our vision of justice? Well, we get it from our God or our gods. Our governments serve our gods. Now, notice I'm saying gods, small g, little less. Maybe your God's name is Jesus Christ. Maybe your God's name is Allah or Buddha. Maybe the name of your God is money or pleasure or freedom or the stock market or the Seattle Seahawks. But I dare say, no matter what the political topic is, you're serving what you worship. You're serving your God as you approach that particular question of justice, that particular political topic. Friends, our politics are utterly and inescapably religious. I'm not saying they should be religious. I'm just describing what they are. Our politics are invariably, inevitably, necessarily religious, whether we mean them to be or not. Again, our governments serve our gods. This is true of every government in every place, ever since God gave governments to the world, the judge judging, the voters voting, the president presiding, all of them work for their God or gods. The public square, you might say, is nothing more or less than a battleground of gods. Americans like to pretend that the, pretend that the public square is neutral, that we kind of leave our gods behind and we come in on certain common values, shared assumptions. That's impossible. None of us do that. We enter the public square and we try to pull the levers of power on behalf of our gods. So if you're listening this morning and you would not understand yourself to be a Christian, thank you first of all so much for, for tuning in as I talk about this ancient text and what it means for our political landscape today. Yeah, I want you to realize what Psalm 2 is saying to you and to me. It's saying that you and I both, in our natural fallen selves, rage against the Lord and rage against His anointed, against His Messiah in our politics and in all of our life. He has declared Himself to be King, and that goes against our natural desire, each one of our natural desires to be King. Uh, these verses are telling us that China rages against the Lord, that Russia 
rages against the Lord, that India, that Kenya, that, this might be uncomfortable for some people, even America rages against the Lord. It tells us that Republicans rage against the Lord and Democrats rage against the Lord and Independents rage against the Lord. How can I be so sure of this? Well, number one, these very verses, God's own word tell us so. Uh, Number two, I know my heart and I know your heart. We all want to be king and so we rage against the Lord and his rule. Now, gratefully, the Bible also says many good things about my heart and your heart. It, it says we were created in God's own image. It says that we are capable of love and goodness and joy. Yet these lighter facts should not cause us to overlook the darker facts about human existence. In fact, something which sets Christianity apart from other views, other religions, other perspectives, is that we're going to try to be honest with you about both the good and the bad of ourselves, of our existence. Well, now, if you're, if you're listening in as a Christian, as a member of the church, what are these first few verses teaching us? Well, they're teaching us that our faith is a political threat. Why? Because we believe that Jesus is king, and every nation conspires against Jesus. Uh, People today often talk about the culture wars. Actually, they're wars of religion. Either you're for Jesus or you're against Jesus. That is the biggest political divide of the world today. It's not right versus left. It's not globalist versus nationalist. It's for Jesus or against Jesus. I think after all of, of what Jesus says in the Great Commission when he says all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Well, the fact that Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth, there's no distinction between public and private in Jesus' rule. It's comprehensive. It it goes everywhere. He cares about how we spend our money, who we sleep with, what we do with our jobs and our free time and our privileges. Of course the nations rage against him and anyone who represents him, who's, who, who claims to speak on his behalf. So Christian, the disdain that you feel, whether in the media or the academy or the courtroom, what are they? Well, they're, they're pictures of this rage. The arguments that we see on social media depict this rage. And it's always been this way. Uh, The Caesars and governors of ancient Rome opposed Christians and sometimes threw them to the lions. Why? Well, they believed that their prosperity, Rome's prosperity, depended on the worship of Rome's gods. Christians opposed Rome's gods, and therefore Rome's gods would be threatened by these Christians and hurt Rome. Do you see? So they opposed Christians and threw them to the lions because they opposed Rome's gods. And they understood their own political and economic prosperity depended on such worship to their gods. Well, Americans too have many gods. The God of material comfort, the God of progress, the God of my rights, the God of self-determination, the God of new technology, the God of sex, the God of safety and my skin color. And we like our way of life. 
oppose my gods, you oppose me, and I will oppose you. I will rage against you when you oppose my gods because they give me what I want. My life depends on them. They're my worship. That is to say, they are the things that I ascribe greatest worth skip. To use the ancient or the mid-English, old English word. Where do we get worship? Worth skip. We, we ascribe the greatest worth to these things. Our worship determines our politics and our rage. Okay. So point one. Every nation rebels against the Lord. Point two. God has no and tolerates no challengers. Point two, God has no and tolerates no challengers. Verse four, he who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. They will speak to them, in his, then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury saying, as for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. <clears throat> Was God threatened by Pharaoh? Mighty Pharaoh. Remember the plagues? Was God threatened by the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar? Do you remember Nebuchadnezzar crawling around on all four hands and feet, eating grass? When I read verses four to six, I can't help but think of an episode from C.S. Lewis's book, The Silver Chair. There's this episode where Jill Pohl finds herself standing in front of this awesome, majestic, frightening lion. And I think this points us in just a dim way to what our posture or our position rather is before the awesome God who has no and who tolerates no challengers. Well, Jill wakes up in this magical land of Narnia and she finds herself terribly thirsty and so she begins to search for water. And hearing a stream, she, she starts to approach, but she sees, as I said, this enormous lion blocking the path between her and this stream she wants to get to. I'm going to read. It lay with its head raised and its two forepaws out in front of it. She knew at once that it had seen her, for its eyes looked straight into hers for a moment and then turned away as if it knew her quite well and didn't think much of her. If I run away, it'll be after me in a moment, thought Jill. And if I go on, I shall run straight into its mouth. Anyway, she couldn't have moved if she had tried, and she couldn't take her eyes off it. How long this lasted, she could not be sure. It seemed like hours. And the thirst became so bad that she almost felt she would not mind being eaten by the lion if only she could be sure of getting a mouthful of water first. If you are thirsty, you may drink. For a second she stared here and there wondering who had spoken. Then the voice said again, If you are thirsty, come and drink. And she realized that it was the lion speaking. Anyway, she had seen its lips move this time, and the voice was not like a man's. It was deeper, wilder, and stronger, a sort of heavy, golden voice. It did not make her any less frightened than she had been before, but it made her frightened in a rather different way. Are you not thirsty? said the lion. I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink said the lion. 
May I? Could I? Would you mind going away while I do? Said Joe. The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, she realized she might have well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I do come? said Jill. I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she had come a step closer. Do you eat girls? she said. I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. I daren't come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step near. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. It never occurred to Jill to disbelieve the lion. No one who had seen its stern face could do that. And her mind suddenly made itself up. It was the worst thing she ever had to do, but she went forward to the stream, knelt down, and began scooping up water in her hand. It was the coldest, most refreshing water she had ever tasted. Friends, God is this powerful, awesome, all-powerful lion who swallows up boys and girls, men and women, kingdoms and cities and nations and realms as if it were nothing. The one who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. I've set my king on Zion, on my holy hill. You think you want to go to another stream? There's no other streams. God has no, tolerates no challengers. It's laughable when we challenge him. It's laughable when others do. Are you worried about this candidate or that party, this election or that Supreme Court nomination? Rage, fear, resentment are the wrong postures for a Christian who believe in this mighty lion. It says you don't know the one you serve and worship, Christian. Think of Daniel emerging from the lion's den. He's crawling out of the den. King Darius comes along. What does Daniel say? He says, O king, live forever. If anybody knows an existential threat sitting in the lion's den is Daniel, and yet he can still honor his pagan king. How does he, how does he do that? He, he, he knows the existential threat. How does he do that? Well, Dev, Daniel also knew that the one in heaven laughs and holds the kings of the earth in derision. They were finally no threat to him. Uh, several months ago, the National Religious Affairs Administration of China released a set of regulations on the management of religious groups. The, the new measures, which were just implemented this February 1st, effectively require religious personnel, pastors like Adam, to support, promote, and implement 
total submission to the Chinese Communist Party among all members of their community. In other words, Adam, your job is to facilitate total submission for you and your congregation to the Chinese Communist Party. Article 5 of these new regulations state that, quote, religious organizations must adhere to the leadership of the Chinese Communist Party, adhere to the directives on religious religions in China, implementing the values of socialism. Adam, your job is to implement the values of socialism in total submission to the Chinese Communist Party. Article 17 demands even more. Religious organizations must spread the principles and policies of the Chinese Communist Party, as well as national laws, regulations, rules to religious personnel and religious citizens, educating religious personnel and religious citizens to support the leadership of the Chinese Communist Party, supporting the socialist system, adhering to and following the path of socialism with Chinese characteristics. And yet Christians in China continue to gather week after week, unafraid. Why? They know the lion. They know the one who sits in heaven laughs at the Chinese Communist Party and holds them in derision. Once upon a time, a man named Hitler made these kinds of requirements. Once upon a time, a man named Stalin made these kinds of requirements. How did that work out for them? How long did their regimes last? How long do you think the Chinese Communist Party is going to last? It's an existential threat. It's a big deal. The one who sits in heaven laughs. And amazing in our own day, friends, American and European judges more and more have been making decisions to limit the freedom of Christians to live and worship according to Scripture, and we should oppose that. Uh, governments exist in part, I'm going to talk about this in the next uh, uh, session, to provide a platform of safety for people to live and to seek the Lord and worship Him. Christian voters and lawyers and politicians and writers should look for ways to maintain the, the freedoms we have. I am not counseling, just uh, leave it all alone. It's fine. It doesn't matter. We should do it for our own sake and we should do it for our neighbors, non-Christian neighbors' sake. So am I telling you to disengage from politics? Not at all. Engage. But as we do, realize that the Chinese Communist Party and its regulation and American activist judges and populist presidents with cavernous appetites for self-promotion, not even the rise and fall of America itself are a threat to God, nor should they therefore be a threat to his people. The one in heaven laughs at all the world can throw at us. Point two. There's a third thing I want us to learn from Psalm 3 this morning, specifically verses 7 to 9. God has granted all rule and dominion to his son. Lesson 3, God has granted all rule and dominion to his son. Verse 7, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. 
there's at least three wrong paths that we can take as we think about Christianity and politics and engaging as Christians. Wrong path number one, call it disengagement. Call this the Jonah option. Let's get out of here. I'm not going to deal with the Ninevites. I am going to Tarshish. I'm going to disengage. If I had a whiteboard behind me, I'd say, you can't take the disengagement off, uh, re, uh, option for, for, for two reasons. I'd, I'd write the word love, and I'd write the word justice. It's just not an option for us. Wrong path number two is capitulation. Go along with the world. An extreme example of this would be the pastors in the German evangelical church established in 1933, aligning themselves with the policies of the Nazi party. I think a subtler example of this <clears throat> would be liberal Christianity's accommodating itself to the sexual ethic of our own day. The compromised path looks promising. It seems to win you influence, make friends. <clears throat> it gives you immediate political status. But finally, it's short-sighted and selfish. It's a way of crying, peace, peace, when of course there is no peace. Judas took this path. Daniel and his friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did not. Wrong path number three, so we got disengagement, we got capitulation, and then wrong path number three is, call it utopianism, or, or just worldliness. And I think this is probably the biggest threat for members of an evangelical church, whether you place yourself on the political left or right. Uh, what is this? Well, th this is when we begin to treat the existential realities of here and now as more important than what's eternal. And so we lose sight of what's eternal. And when we go down this path, we pursue good things like justice or righteousness, but we forget that our political judgments now are temporary and prone to err. While only the judgments of God and Scripture are perfect and eternal. And so as we pursue our error-prone, temporary political judgments, we give them an outsized importance. We adopt a worldly strategy or tone. We, we miss the fact that they're undermining our gospel witness, our unity as the body of Christ. We begin to even despise fellow Christians when they make different political judgments than our own. And as I said, we give earthly political outcomes, a, a vote on the law, an election, a Supreme Court case or nomination, this outsized importance as if all caps, the next election's the most important thing in the world. America will be gone forever. Vote as your life depended on it. And along the way, we communicate to the world that our faith, that Christianity, it's just a sub-branch of this particular party, that particular movement. And hiding underneath the floorboards of this particular air is what I called utopianism, the belief that we can bring heaven to earth now. Perhaps just an easier, more biblical way to explain it is to say it's just worldliness. We put all our stock, all our value, all our expectation and hope in this world. But look at verses 7 to 9 again to remind you of, friends, what you already know. Verse 7, this king is declared to be God's son 
which is how God referred to the occupant of David's throne from David onward. And of course, the son David pointed to the capital S son, the beloved son. And then in verse 8, we see more clearly that the king's commission is to make God's rule and dominion visible on earth, among the nations. And didn't Jesus tell us as his saints to go to all nations in our lives individually and collectively as churches? Aren't we making his rule visible? His judgments as we pronounce them, repent and believe, aren't we making his rule declared and visible? And then look at verse 9. Not only will the king, the son, possess the earth, he will enact God's rule and judgment. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. If we were to fast forward our Bibles to Revelation 4, or I mean the book of Revelation, we would see this very verse quoted three times. Jesus will come on the last day and declare his final judgment, and he will dash the nations to pieces. It's because of this promise that Christ's dreadful judgment, this assurance that, friends, we don't need to finally fall into a posture of fear, resentment, rage. The principalities and powers want us to get worked up over whether we're watching on Fox News or MSNBC. They want to work us up into a feverish pitch, pitch distressed and overwrought by what's going on in the next election. They play to our idols of comfort and pleasure and financial well-being and self-righteousness and safety. They keep us enslaved. But friends, the Son possesses all authority and all judgment. His judgment later means he possesses rule now. When all the world wants to talk about politics, sometimes the most powerful thing we can say as Christians is, you know, this actually isn't as important as you think it is. And change the subject. Again, the principalities and powers want our worship, but we cannot give it to them. We know the lion. Okay, so if, if withdrawal is the wrong path of engagement and capitulation is the wrong path and an overexcited and idolatrous engagement is the wrong path, what is the right path? Well, that brings us to our last point. Fourth and finally, we learn from Psalm 2 that rule and refuge are only in the Son. Rule and refuge are only in the Son. Verse 10, Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, it's common for people today to say, well, look, you can't, you can't impose on the Bible, the Bible uh, on people who don't believe it. Well, that's certainly true. The Bible does not give the power of the sword to the church. We're not called as churches to wield the sword on behalf of our faith. Islam has a vision of conversion by the sword. Christianity does not. That said, that does not keep us from speaking honestly, or voting according to one, what the Bible says is the God, God, job of government. And we'll talk about that in the next session. Or two, voting in light of the final judgment. Listen to verse 10 again. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Be warned, Donald Trump. Be warned, Joe Biden. 
Be warned, Ruth Bader Ginsburg and John Roberts. Be warned, Mr. Mayor and President of the PTA. Be warned, voters of the nation. Christ will come with judgment. So, verse 11, serve the Lord with fear. In fact, verse 12, kiss the Son, bow down to Him. Friends, Psalm 2 is not speaking to Israel, ancient Israel. It's speaking to the nations of the earth and the voters of the earth. Let me, let me give an illustration of how this might impact our voting. Uh, an evangelical scholar recently released a book, released a book on, on the Bible and politics, and in it he argues that though he agrees that homosexuality is a sin, non-Christians don't believe that, and therefore we have no right to impose our religion on them, and therefore we should support and sponsor same-sex marriage. Now, I understand the same-sex marriage debate is kind of passed and moved on. Nonetheless, I think it makes a useful illustration. There's a difference between criminalizing something and subsidizing, supporting something. So no, the Bible does not call us to encourage the government to use its powers to criminalize all sin. I, I would not call, for instance, the criminalization of fornication, right? But marriage law is something different. Same-sex marriage law asks me to put my hand to something to support and subsidize something that I know from these verses causes the anger of the son. So I would just say to my fellow Christians, like, why would we do that? Why, why would we put our hand to something that is going to bring the wrath of the lamb on the last day? This does affect how we encounter the public square. Okay, so, so if it's draw, capitulation, utopianism are three wrong paths, what's the right path of Christian engagement? One word, representation. That's what we do when we take refuge in the Son. We become citizens of His kingdom and we represent Him in everything we do. We represent Him at home and at work. We represent Him on vacation and in the church building. We represent Him on the ball field and in the bedroom and in the boardroom. We represent Him in the public square. Now, Psalm 2 does not tell us everything we need to know about political engagement, about how God would establish the kingship of his son. It just, in fact, hints in that direction. We need the rest of the Bible, but how does it hint in that direction? Well, consider what we see happening in these last couple of verses. Well, we learn in verses 10 and 11 that God in his mercy warns before he destroys and then we learn in verse 12 that blessing comes to all those who take refuge in him. Or as one commentator put it, there is no refuge from him, only in him. You see, God would send his son and establish him as king in the most unexpected way. Revelation, the book of Revelation, shows us a Christ who will come in final judgment and dash the nations to pieces with an iron rod. But we know from earlier in the New Testament that Jesus came to establish his kingdom actually in his first coming as a suffering servant. And so the gospel writers present Jesus moving to the cross with a crown of thorns on his head and then a purple royal cloak around his shoulders 
and then lifted up on his throne, winning judgment over the two greatest enemies we have, sin and death. Defeating, conquering those two greatest enemies of humanity, our own sin and the death that we earn from it. And there we discover the king. And so it was written, the king of the Jews. And we could say of all nations. You see, friends, we have all killed others in our hearts through our hatred. We have all been racists. We have all cheated and lied. We have all been hypocritical. None of us escapes condemnation. And by rising again from the grave, Jesus won a people for himself. Sinners like us. And all authority in heaven on earth have been given to him. And now you and me and the kings of the earth are called to repent of our sins and follow after him. So are, are you on the political left and you're afraid of the existential threat of the right? Or, or are you on the political right and you live in fear of the existential threat of the left? I'm not going to deny or downplay either threat. I'll say they're as bad as you think they are. Maybe even worse, frankly. Yet there's a greater threat. The wrath of God for your sin and for mine. After all, who dwells among the nations? It's not just them out there, friends. We are the nations. We are the ones who have raged against the Lord. We are the ones whom he sits in heaven and laughs at and holds us in derision and calls us to take refuge in this son. That should be, that eternal fear should be our greatest fear. And what's the solution? Well, it's the fact that the Lord Jesus himself stood before Herod and Pontius Pilate and he received in his own body all the existential threat that Herod and Pontius Pilate could do to a body. But even more than that, he stood before God Almighty and received the eternal punishment that we all deserve for our sins. And friends, if we're holding on to him, if we're taking refuge in him, what else do we have to fear? Again, to my non-Christian friend, if you're listening in, when I say it's impossible to separate our, our politics and religion, I'm, I'm not saying that I think Christians should pick up the sword of state and force people, force you to be a Christian. The Bible doesn't give us the authority to do that. Uh, nor am I calling you to join a particular political party. Rather, I mean first that you are already serving your God or gods in your politics, whether you realize it or not. And I mean second, that everything we do, including in the public square, is subject to the scrutiny and judgment of the one true God who created you and me. And the good news of Christianity is that even though you and I have lived unjust lives, this king we read about in Psalm 2 came, lived a perfectly just life, 
and then went to the cross and rose again for our justification so that we might be declared just and righteous and then calls us to follow him in such a life of justice and righteousness. Even though you don't deserve it. Even though I don't deserve it. And so now this king is saying to you, be warned, be wise, kiss the sun. And to the members of downtown Cornerstone, what does Psalm 2 have to teach us? Well, it teaches us that Jesus is your king and that you're a citizen of his kingdom. Before you're anything else, before you're an American, before you're a man or a woman or black or white or rich or poor, college, uneducated, a non-college educated, your identity, first and foremost, is found in the fact that you're a son of this king. You are an adopted heir. You are a citizen. And it says that the nations will rage against us because it rages against the one we follow. But it also says that the one who sits in heaven laughs. He will have victory. He will victory vindicate his name. He will vindicate the name of his people. And all we're doing now in our lives, in our politics, is simply representing him. That is our job. What is my job, politically speaking, Christian? It is to represent this king. To say, nations of the earth, be warned, be wise. Kiss the sun, lest he be angry. Take refuge not from him, you can't, but in him. Because he is a good king and a good Lord. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we exalt and honor you as the line of the tribe of Judah. We exalt you as the king of kings and lord of lords who possesses all authority in heaven and on earth. And we pray that you would forgive us for the ways we so often worship the gods of this world and so often give in to their fears. And we let the gods of this world and the principalities and powers work us up into an emotional frenzy as if you did not sit on your throne laughing, holding the kings of this world in derision, saying that all is yours. So we confess that sin and we give you praise for who you are and give you praise for saving us to be your people. What, 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 what do we have left to fear? Because you are our God. You are our King. In Christ's name, amen.